1 Peter chapter 3 up there, and it's 1 Peter chapter 2. I got a little ahead of myself. So 1 Peter chapter 2, and uh, we're going to be in that scripture this morning. But the Bible tells us how we should respond and behave in turbulent times. Did you know that? It gives us a roadmap. It tells us that we can be like the men of Issachar mentioned in 1 Chronicles who understood the times and knew what their nation should do. And you can bring salt and light to the people of North Dakota and to our nation. I hope you take that U.S. Missions prayer chart home with you, that prayer guide, and you look at that very carefully. Malcolm Burley, the director of U.S. Missions, is a friend of mine, and I know that his heart for our nation is that there be Uh, guidance and healing in turbulent times. There's five basic things I want to share with you this morning as I enter into the word that we're going to be discussing. You need to understand these five things before I can get to what I really want to say. Isn't that like a Bible school guy to tell you what you got to know before you know what you got to know? I'm trying to lay a groundwork here, but there's five things I want you to understand. First is God has not fallen off of his throne despite any circumstances we face today. It is sure and certain that God still reigns. He is still sovereign. He is still Lord. He is still the one who makes the sun to rise and the sun to set each day. So God still in authority, God still in control. He gives us what we need to live in these times. Second thing is that God is concerned about you and he understands your concerns and your fears. Sometimes we think about God being way up there and us being way down here and certainly he cannot be all that excited about me or you, but he's intimately concerned about each of us. He sent his son to redeem us because he's concerned about us. Third thing I want you to understand is God's not surprised by recent events. I'm not excited about 419 a gallon. I'm sure you're not either. And if you're paying for diesel, all I can do is say I'm praying for you. If you're running farm equipment, I hope you bought last year. Because this year's a shocker, isn't it? But God's concerned about these things. And God didn't wake up this morning, Wes, and say, I didn't see that coming. He knew, and he knows you, and he knows how many acres you have to get planted, or he knows how many people are being laid off at the plant, or he knows the kinds of uncertainty that we're facing in this climate that we're in. And God says he already has a plan, number four, that he can use the circumstances we face even before we knew we would face them. God is not surprised today. And you say, well, what good could God bring out of all this? Well, when you're salt and light, you need people to suffer around you in the darkness in order for his message to have an appeal. The circumstances in our world today are giving us a voice if we choose to use it. And the fifth thing that God wants us to understand is that he has not given us a spirit of fear, but of power and of love and of a sound mind. 2 Timothy chapter 1, verse 7. He has not given us a spirit of fear. So those five things set the groundwork for understanding 
how peace can rule in our lives in turbulent times. Even when the circumstances seem most dour, we can thrive. Why? We're not the first believers to know our share of troubled times, are we? This is nothing new. In fact, Peter, the writer of this passage of Scripture I'm going to unfold for you today, was a fisherman who rose from amongst the 12 disciples to lead the early church, and he had his share of turbulent times. He bristled under foreign occupation. He personally failed the person he loved most, and he was often arrested, tortured, and imprisoned, and ultimately died a martyr's death for the cause of the the gospel. But he was fine with that because he understood the depth and breadth and expanse of God's love toward him and toward our world. So few people can speak with Peter's authority on how to endure tough times. And this is where we get into that passage of Scripture, 1 Peter chapter 2, beginning at verse 10. Whoever desires to love life and see good day, or de- excuse me, days, let him keep his tongue from evil. Now, what does my tongue have to do with evil times? Well, I want to love life. I want to enjoy relationship with God. I cannot allow my tongue to go one way and my relationship with God to go the other way. I have to have my tongue and my relationship with God headed in the same direction. And that's a little tough, isn't it? Sometimes we just want to carp about the situations we're in today. Sometimes we just want to complain about those fellows in Washington. Not that you'd ever have done that in Lisbon. Ever. He says, let him turn away from evil and do good. Let him pursue or seek peace and pursue it. We want to set things right, and that isn't a very peaceful action, is it? Oftentimes we want to set justice in motion. Vengeance is mine, saith the Lord, and I'm his instrument. No. We seek peace and we pursue it. Verse 12. Why? For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous and his ears are open to their prayer. That may mean that God's Listening ear isn't as apt to hear us if we're not living in accordance with the things Peter's already told us. If we're not pursuing peace, if we're not speaking truth in love, if we're not behaving as God intends us to behave, I don't know if God's as apt to hear our cries. And he says this, the face of the Lord is set against those who do evil. Verse 13, now, who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what is good? That's a good thought. If I'm out there doing what's right, no one's going to be against me in the spiritual realm. I like that. Who's there to harm me? Who can, who can take me out if I'm there doing the work of God? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be, what? Blessed. Why? Because God blesses those who are about his work. Safest place to be is in the center of God's will. 
The circumstances that we endure today will not last, but his love endures forever. He says, have no fear of them or be troubled, but in your hearts honor Christ, the holy or the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense for anyone who asks you uh, the reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. Think about this. We have hope when others around us despair. We have hope when circumstances seem to stack up against us. And I totally agree with the prayer request of praying for farmers this morning because fields aren't getting planted. But I also know that we cannot despair. We cannot let our hearts grow so heavy that we don't have the equipment ready to roll out in the fields, that we can't throw in the towel, that we can't sell off the farm because of hard times. God wants us to endure. (coughs) And he said, be ready to give an answer for the hope that is in you. So when you go down to the coffee shop and everybody else is telling you how the wheels have fallen off and the sun won't shine tomorrow, you have hope. You have reason to believe. It's not Christmas, but I'm going to mention a Christmas movie for a second. It's a Wonderful Life. George Bailey is talking to Mr. Potter. And they're having a conversation. And basically, Mr. Potter says that he's the only one, along with George Bailey, in that whole town that kept their heads in the Depression. And so the home and loan that George Bailey was part of and Potter both prospered when everybody else had panicked and people were selling off everything, despairing of the future, jumping off buildings. We need to keep our head when everyone else is losing it around us. And so we have to have reason for that. Why? Because we're going to be able to give a defense for Jesus. When everything is going right, How many people are looking for a relationship with God? But when everything is going wrong, how many people find faith? Ask the people in Ukraine what they're fighting for. And they'll tell you they're fighting for their country, (coughs) they're fighting for the truth of their God, and they're fighting for each other. It looks like maybe, just maybe, They're going to cause the enemy nations to take flight and turn tail and run. A little tiny nation with the faith of David going up against Goliath. And if I heard correctly this morning, Russian forces have lost a full third of their fighting strength. Going up against a country who didn't have that many people in their nation. Why did they fight so hard? Because they had everything to gain and nothing to lose. When we hit hard times, people are open to the truth of Jesus. And we need to be ready to give a defense for our faith. It's better to suffer for doing good, if that should be God's will, than for doing evil, Peter says. End of verse 17. 
There's three things that Peter says will give us a quiet peace while storms rage around us, and they're all based on one major truth. God has his attention turned toward us. He cares about our situation. He hears us when we pray. He's fully aware of what we're going through. And as verse 12 says, the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous. So what do we need to do? The first thing is we need to watch our mouths. It's so tempting to join in the fray. It's so tempting to join the crowd and mock and revile and rebuke and discredit everyone around us that we disagree with. But the Bible is pretty clear. Whoever desires life, whoever desires to see good day or days, let him keep his tongue from evil and his lips from speaking deceit. That's what the scripture says. There's a term I use daily that I don't remember being common in earlier days, and it's the phrase fact checker. Have you ever heard that phrase being used? We need a fact checker. Happened the other day to the uh, administration. They were talking about, thank you, uh, vaccines not being available before the current president took office. And fact checkers were on that like a bead of honey. Did you notice that? Fact checkers. It's kind of like I say, you know, um, I've been enduring a famine here. You can see... And you say, oh, I'm not so sure that's a famine, brother. Not as big as I once was, but I'm bigger than I ought to be. Fact-checking would point that out to me. Okay. Fact-checkers, the concept isn't new. The early church was encouraged to discern the truth, and the Berean church was commended for its habit of fact-checking when they heard from teachers things that were against the written word of God. And that's great advice. Don't we need to check out what's being said? Don't we need to have discerning hearts? Don't we need to see the truth of Scripture and use it to interpret the times that we live in? i got to tell you, friends, they're not easy times we're in, but this is not persecution yet. It's not even serious Difficulties. I've watched inflation in a nation called Zimbabwe. When we were living in South Africa as missionaries, they would print Zim dollars, Zimbabwe dollars. And on the day that it was printed, that Zim dollar was worth one U.S. dollar. And three weeks later, it would take two suitcases full of Zim dollars to board a bus. They actually got to where they print expiration dates on their dollars. It was somewhere in the neighborhood of 2,800% annual inflation. We've got a little bit of issues here. I'm feeling it the same as you. But we're not in world-class hardship yet. You do understand that. Well, we need to check our own communication to ensure that we're not being less than truthful with ourselves. That's where it begins. I have to begin to look at myself and see how truthful am I about the circumstances that I'm in. I am not excited about $1.19 a gallon more than a year ago on gasoline. Especially when I live in Ellendale and I have to check my gas before I get my groceries. 
But I'm not living in hardship. And I'm not living under persecution. And no one's coming to arrest me in the night because of my faith. It could be as simple as sharing a post from another user on Facebook without first seeing if the claim is true. We don't want to be spreaders of falsehood. In fact, I've gotten to where I seldom ever post or read posts like that on social media. Because so much of it is arbitrary and hateful and often outright lies. And I don't care where on a political spectrum you would fall. Left, right, up, down, forward or backward, there's a lot of mistruth, which is just falsehood, being stated on social media. Sometimes we copy and post without using any discernment at all. Could be that we need to calm down before we post about a situation that has us all riled up. You know, most of my storms are storms in a teacup. What matters to me today, I hardly give a thought to tomorrow. Is that like you? Are you that way at all? The stuff that really gets a burr under your saddle might not be just as important as the ulcers that it gives us. Peter sets the truth bar pretty high for us. He doesn't say to keep evil and deceit to a minimum. He says, don't use your mouth to speak evil at all. That's tough. It would be better to say nothing than to speak a lie or deceive another person. Can anyone say, ouch? So the first thing that we need to realize is that we need to watch our mouth. The second thing that we need to realize is that we are called to turn from evil toward good. He says in verse 11, let them turn away from evil and do good. This requires change on our part. We're all prone to do evil because we like to take shortcuts. We were born into evil. We want to get to the head of the line. We want to rise to the top. We just want to get ahead. But evil is especially deceptive because it neglects to warn us that as fast as we rise, we will fall even faster. If we rise on the heels of deceit, our demise will be massive. Peter says, don't do it. Sin never lets in on an essential truth that always leads to ruin. But Peter doesn't just tell us to turn from evil. He instructs us not only to turn from evil, but to do good. So if I pull back from social media, I've done half of what Peter said. I'm no longer doing evil. I'm no longer clicking copy and share randomly. But I'm then obligated to do something positive as well. So I have to stop doing one thing and I have to start doing another thing. And how many of us know that we fight doing two things at once? But scripture says, turn from evil, do good. 
And I'm not talking about a Christianity built on works. I'm talking about a Christianity that's built on faith that works naturally follow. How many people do you know that depend on amazing grace to the point of making no contribution anywhere to anyone over anything? They stopped doing evil, but they never took up doing good. There has to be both. And so Peter says, turn from evil, do good. Because mere silence is no response to evil. Instead, we're called to counter evil with good. We are supposed to engage. We are supposed to take part. We are supposed to get involved. And doing good is what will draw people to Christ. Get that float built. Man that parade. Hand out those bottles of water. And this day and age, anyone giving anyone anything for no apparent cost will cause all kinds of suspicion to be cast your way. And when it is, you can tell them about Jesus. Why would you do something for me? I've never done anything for you. Well, it's because Jesus did something for me when I could never do something for him. See where it's going? Stop doing evil, start doing good. The third thing that Peter says is seek peace. The last part of verse 12 says, let him seek peace and pursue it. Once we've opted to reject evil and do good, we are to seek peace and pursue it. That last bit's a challenge. Peace often comes when I will ignore myself. Excuse me, I will myself to ignore the easy way and do things God's way. I opt to follow his part and his path instead of the way of least resistance. Do I look like a guy who resists much? My wife makes some of the best desserts in the world. When I married her, I weighed 112 pounds. That's not true. But it didn't weigh what I weigh now either. (laughs) And so resistance doesn't come easy to us as human beings, does it? Were you raised where people use sarcasm as sort of a family communication tool? Yeah, I was too. My brother and I could insult each other and bring tears to ordinary humans, but we were insulated. We'd been doing it for so long that when he'd call me something and I'd call him something back, it just escalated. And I don't think it ever registered with us that we were speaking such terrible, terrible things over each other's life. Later, and I got, it got so much better. My brother was about the same height as I am, but he weighed about 100 pounds less than I do. And so instead of insulting him and his heritage, which eventually occurred to me I was insulting myself too, <laughs> I'd just look at him and say, well, mom only fed the one she loved. <laughs> he didn't have a comeback for that. Only took me all my life to figure that out. The kind of speech that brings peace, though, doesn't knock someone else down to make me feel better about myself. Seeking peace means I'm looking for a solution where you win too, not just me. And the trouble is we're competitive people. 
How weird is it if you go to a basketball game and Lisbon's playing an arch rival and somebody next to you starts rooting for or cheering for a great play on the other team? How many of you would really appreciate that observation? We're competitive. In order for me to win, it means that someone else has to lose. That's not the way of peace. Peace means I need to find out how you can win without my compromising what's of real value. That doesn't mean I have to compromise my, or don't have to compromise my pride. I may have to compromise my pride for you to win. But if I can see a way for both of us to come out of a situation with a win, then that's seeking peace. That means I pray for other churches and don't compete against them. That means I ask God to bless other ministries, even when I think maybe it will come at my own expense. Because it's not about pride, it's about people knowing Jesus. It's about supporting someone who disagrees with me politically because they share faith with me in Christ. Ouch. Can't trust those people, whoever those people are. Right? But I have to seek peace and pursue it. It's a challenge. How do we clarify this? How about a hunting illustration? It's one thing to go hunting and walk out the door, and it's another thing to prepare adequately for the hunt, like having a license. For some reason, the game department thinks that's important. You need to know where to hunt. You need to have a rifle or a shotgun or ammunition of some kind to fill those weapons. It's not going to do a whole lot of good to use a 50 caliber Weatherby against grouse or pheasants. And you don't want to use a 20 gauge shotgun against a grizzly bear. It will be a decision, but it won't be your best one. You need to have a good eye, and you need to be willing to chase after your prey once you shoot it, unless, of course, you're a good enough shot that it drops where it stands. And I say all this because I've talked to hunters, not because I are one. I've tried hunting multiple times, and they've been beautiful hikes. Everybody else will bag their limit. I got three does and a buck. I got a corn on my little toe. (laughs) Pray for me, folks. But the act of pursuit becomes a great part of of the hunt, and it's the same with peace. I have to pursue peace like I'm out on a hunt for prey. I have to know what peace looks like. I have to know how to approach peace. I have to know what to do to achieve peace. I have to bag that animal much like a hunt. If I want peace, I've got to do what it takes to garner peace. And I much prefer the concept of peace than I do pursuing it. My wife and I will be married 
41 years at the end of this month. And we've been in ministry that whole time. In fact, we loaded up a moving van the day before the wedding. Had one night in Seattle before we packed up everything in the moving van and spent the next week in a 14-foot U-Haul moving to inner city St. Louis. She is a godly and forgiving woman. But peace hasn't always come easily. There was a day she tried to straighten my desk. I have made some honest comments about early food. We did one time refer to dishes that she would make as nuclear because everything was in there and it was all mixed up. Fed nations with the nuclear. But peace came because we pursued it. And every day we pursue peace. Every day we, imagine living with me. No, uh, I don't want you to go there. You'll get depressed. The truth is she has to work hard for the strength of the marriage that we enjoy. And when I have had issues physically, she's a nurse. Nurses don't have mercy gifts. Nurses tell you what you need to do without any mercy, without any remorse. And they just look at you and say, deal with it. When I've wanted mercy and I've gotten Marie, I've had to pursue peace. Honey, my leg hurts. Get up and use it. Pursue peace. It takes work to live in peace with other people. So the act of pursuit becomes a part of the hunt. And the rest of the passage tells us what to expect when we obey. Peter doesn't promise that it'll be easy to be obedient. Instead, he focuses on what can be gained by obedience. Now, I imagine this church has probably had a course somewhere along the line on financial management and stewardship. I'm just guessing with a banker in the, in the building, something's been said about faithful stewardship somewhere along the line. I never once saw anyone who was fascinated by the most amazing budgetary software in the world. I've never seen anybody who really reveled in financial discipline. But when you get what you were striving for through the discipline, isn't it nice to not have to take out a loan to go down to Pizza Ranch after church? If you practice stewardship and it bears its fruit, isn't it great to have the yield at the end and know that you don't have to worry about whether or not you should sell the car and start walking? Because gas went up a dollar. The discipline is not romantic. The discipline isn't fun. The discipline isn't something that would really gain ratings on national television. But the discipline bears a fruit (laughs) that everybody would like to talk about. How I became a millionaire. Right? 
It's not easy to be obedient, but there's something to be gained. It's not easy to be obedient, but there is some fruit in obedience that brings us great joy. And Peter tells us in verse 13 and 14, all the way down to 17, what it is. He says, now who is there to harm you if you're zealous for what's good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness sake, you will be blessed. What's a blessing of God worth? What's the monetary value of God's blessing? I don't think you can put it in monetary terms. But when God looks down on you, when he is connecting with you, when he's calling you by your first name, in fellowship with you, and he says, beloved, I am well pleased with you. What could be better than that? Do you ever live in fear of God? Thinking he was up there with his holy hatchet? Way to knock off your head for the smallest infraction? I was raised that way. It was a relationship to be managed out of sheer terror. Because he is judge. Which is true. But the motivation of the judge was not represented accurately at all. Right? The eyes of the Lord roam to and fro over the earth. Why? Like a Texas Ranger, his eyes are upon you. And if you do wrong, you're going to pay. There's truth in it, but it's not truthful. Because God's motivation is to redeem and to bless, to seek and to save, to set our feet out of miry clay and onto solid ground. He wants us to thrive. And so it's no surprise when he'll catch us being good and tell us so. That's called being blessed. My kids, I have four of them. As young missionaries, we traveled on a 27-foot U-Haul or a motorhome. 27 foot, six people in an RV, class C, so part of it was cab. And you can imagine with ages 10 down to five months, what that was really like. It was pandemonium and chaos. And we found ourselves having to correct my children, especially the three older ones. The younger one was just kind of sitting there hanging around, but... The other three could get into mischief in an all-fired hurry. And we'd chasten them and chide them and correct them. And all of a sudden it occurred to us that we were just down on them all the time. And so I started a chant when I caught them doing what we expected of them. Do you ever, you know, as a kid on the playground, do you ever say, here, kid, start something like, da-da-da-da-da-da. You remember that? Did they do that in the Dakotas? Or is that just a other place thing? Well, ours was, I caught you being good. I caught you being good. And I'll tell your mommy, I caught you being good. And the kids would get big grins on their face because we caught them out in a moment of absolute excellence. And if I start humming that to my kids, they get a grin on their face today. They're in there, mostly in their 30s. 
Scary thought. God doesn't just wait to put the hammer down on our heads. God sometimes wants to bless our socks off. And what he says is, well done, good and faithful servant. And that comes through a discipline when we seek peace, when we pursue it. We get something out of that obedience. God's blessing. He says, have no fear of them, nor be troubled. But in your hearts, honor Christ, the Lord is holy. Always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect. So as you're handing out the water bottle in the parade that has your church logo on it, great idea. Don't smile at the person and say, turn or burn. Mixed messages confuse people. Rather, we would so love to have you join us and find refreshing like this every week. And in turbulent times, Lisbon needs a church like this. In turbulent times, people need to know that after the week they've had, they can come here and spend a Sunday morning with people like you in the presence of God and find refreshing. So speak that out. Be ready to give an answer for your faith. He says, having a good conscience so that when you're slandered, those who revile your good behavior in Christ may be put to shame. Don't Fight fire with fire. Let what you've been up to speak for itself when people look down on you and the cause of Christ. We are not going to elect Christ's kingdom into existence. Political systems do what political systems do. We're going to see real revival and change in our nation when we let Christ do what Christ does through us, and that's to redeem. Peter's honest. Sometimes we can do the right thing and still suffer for it. But as he wrote in verse 17, it's better to suffer for doing good than it should be God's will than for doing evil. And in between, he tells us that what we should do for the reasons that God provides will give us the ability to explain our faith, make a defense, offer a reason for hope that is in us, hope that carries through in times like this. How many of you know that if you quit, you're done? How many of you know if you throw the towel in, you don't get a second towel? Not in these days. Hope gives us victory when others fall prey to fear. And hope transforms not only those of us who know Christ, but also those who witness our hope and begin to desire it for themselves. Hope becomes contagious when hope is displayed. So you go down to the coffee shop, and instead of whining like the rest of them, you talk about the hope that's in you. And the conversation turns, and your hope becomes contagious. 
That's important because this church exists to be hope for the whole Lisbon area. Your salt and light that can bring war or uh, uh, hope when wars wage and things like COVID hit. I can't really quite believe that as much as people manipulated COVID over the last two years that we're done with COVID. I don't know if the disease will be back or just the way that we treat it. But let me tell you this. We can't change the circumstances around us. But we can begin to bring hope to people no matter what the harvest looks like. We can bring hope to people no matter what the gas prices may be at the pump. You can bring hope to people in the wake of political division and uncertainty. You know what's amazing to me? Is people on the west and east coast are moving to North Dakota in droves. There's been more property sold in Ellendale in the last six months than there had been in the last 10 years. Where are they coming from? Everywhere on either coast. Why? Because they've given up over there and they think there's something here to find. Well, what if they got here and just found our attitudes? Ufta. So when we speak hope, people will follow Christ. And when we speak hope, it's important that you equip yourself to give an answer for why hope rises in you. Could you tell me today why you're hopeful? Can you tell me today why you believe greater things are yet to come? If you can't, listen better to Pastor Jeff. He'll help you. The hope that we all need is found in Christ for the future we all hope to have. And God will continue to reach our family and friends with this truth and with his love and with salvation. And those people can share the generous promise God made to us through Christ's sacrifice on the cross. We sang about that this morning, didn't we? Your lives and the lives of all you hold dear matters to God. And he's aware of your circumstances and mindful of your need, and he sees exactly how things are, and he wants to enable you to do the same thing. You think you have a good handle on it. You think you have your finger on the pulse. But if there is not a divine element in your assessment of current conditions in our world, you're missing the greatest truth. God has a plan through all this. A plan to prosper you and not to harm you. A plan to give you hope and a future. When everyone else despairs of their hope and future, you have an unshakable hope and future. Do you know him? Have you made that all-important choice to follow him? Have you asked Christ to forgive your sins and become the savior of your life? It's possible that you could attend church for years and never really take what you hear here as your own. So what good does it do to have a church like this but not to follow Jesus? It's your opportunity to surrender your life to him. It's your opportunity to find hope in him, to make things right once and for all so that you can know the joy of salvation and you too can pursue peace. 
You say, hey, we're all church folk here. We've been this group for years. Now you come in and haven't been here for a couple years yourself, and now you ask us a question like that. Well, yes, I would. Because it's too easy to walk into church and do the same things you've always done and not to find the hope that's available to you and leave empty or broken, just like when you came. But it's also possible to change all that through a simple acknowledgement that you need Jesus to be Lord and Savior of your life, not just to be something that you do on a Sunday morning. So I just want to ask you quietly, is that you this morning? You need to take the next step and actually make the faith you hear about here yours. If it is, it's available to you. And this is a moment when everything can change for you. So I'd simply ask you, do you know him? And if you don't, what's stopping you from getting to know him? So with every eye closed and every head bowed, is there anyone here today who would say, I need to make a faith commitment to Jesus, not just to a church, not just to a a kind of uh, understanding of the Bible, but I actually want Jesus to be Lord of my life. If that's you this morning, would you raise your hand and let me pray for you? I kind of expected most of us would already have done that. But let me ask a second question to those of you who are believers. Have you allowed the world and its concerns and cares to cast aside your victory? Have you lost hope? Would you invite God to restore hope to you this morning? If you've been struggling with where life is at, where our country is at, where gas prices are at, where the farmer's fields are left unplanted and the equipment stands on the road, if it's gotten you down and you want to lay it over onto Jesus, would you just let me pray for you by raising a hand and saying, hey, pray for me. I need hope restored. Thank you. Is there someone else? Thank you. Is there anyone else? It's very important that you not leave here without renewed hope. I want you to leave here knowing that God is so concerned about you and your circumstances that he is willing to revitalize you and give you hope anew, joy unspeakable, full of glory. If you want me to say that prayer over you this morning, would you just lift your hand? Two have already done so. Is there anyone else? Thank you. Anyone else? Let me pray over you. Father in heaven, as believers, our path is set towards you. Nothing that happens in our world can interrupt your path. You're willing to do things that we can't even imagine if we'll just commit to doing things your way. And we'll know your outcome. So I'm asking you, God, become peace in the midst of the storm. For these people who have raised their hand, who have taken that serious step of faith 
to have said, hey, I have a need, would you pray over me? Father, I ask in Jesus' name, give new joy, hope, and peace in the midst of the storm they may be going through. And may you be glorified, God, in everything that we say and do as we are salt and light in the midst of darkness. May our lights and our testimony shine brighter than they ever have before, that Lisbon and North Dakota and our nation and our world will know you as we've never known you before. In the powerful name of Jesus, I pray. Amen and amen. God bless you, friends.